This is a HeadGum Podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Good Christian Fun. I'm Kevin, and today we're doing something a little different and sharing with you our episode of GCF Second Service from last week covering Angels in America. Uh, we covered Angels in America Part 1, Millennium Approaches, with special guest Mara Wilson. Now, in listening back to this episode, I realized that we were so excited to talk about it that we basically gave zero context to the play and to the miniseries before we got into it. So, to catch you up to speed... Angels in America is a Pulitzer Prize winning epic play in the literal sense of the word epic by Tony Kushner. Uh, Part one premiered in 1991, part two in 92. The play itself is set in the year 1985 and centers around Prior Walter, a gay man who learns he has AIDS, but also learns he may be a prophet. Also in the play, a closeted Mormon man, real life historical figure Roy Cohn dealing with his own AIDS diagnosis. Oh, and Ethel Rosenberg is in there as well. The version of the play we're covering today is the HBO miniseries from 2003 starring Al Pacino, Meryl Streep, and Emma Thompson. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it now. It's on HBO Max, uh, split up into six episodes. Part one of the play is the first three episodes, and I cannot recommend it enough. This whole entire seven-hour movie is one of my favorite movies ever made. It's my birthday month, October 11th. Haley and Annie, get at me. And so I told Caroline, I wanted to cover this play. That means so, so much to me. And also, I know some of this sounds like a drag. It's seven and a half hours long. It deals with this horrific disease and epidemic while we're dealing with our own epidemic right now. But it is not a drag. It is so thrilling. It's funny. It's surprising. It's important. And at one point, because the actors play multiple characters, Meryl Streep is dressed up as a rabbi. Uh, So there you go. That's something to look forward to. So we hope you enjoy this episode. You can catch more Second Service at patreon.com slash goodchristianfun. And thank you for listening. Now here's the show. Okay. Maybe I'll start with a little monologue to to warm us up. (laughs) Please do. Can you do it in character as someone that's culturally not appropriate for you to do? (laughs) You don't live in America. <laughs> no, I'll do another one not culturally appropriate for me to do. Here, here's here's how here's how we'll kick it off. Okay, we're all recording, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. I don't want you to be impressed. I want you to understand. This is not sophistry and this is not hypocrisy. This is reality. I have sex with men, but unlike every other man of whom this is true, I bring the guy I'm screwing to the White House and President Trump smiles at us and shakes his hand because what I am is defined by who I am. Kevin T. Porter is not a homosexual. Kevin T. Porter is a heterosexual man, Caroline and Mara, who fucks (laughs) around with guys. (laughs) 
<laughs> Talk later. It's the Angels in AmeriCast, part one. Millennials approach it. <laughs> I'm Kevin. I'm Caroline. And we're joined by special guest, writer, author, actress, Mara Wilson's with us today. Hello. Welcome. I'm very, I'm very happy to be here. Thank Greetings, you. prophets all around. All yes. around. <laughs> Regina, I'm an angel, Regina. actually. What's that? And I'm actually an angel and a little bit of a devil. 1%. Everyone's <laughs> I, a I, little. I was going to Regina Vagina. It, I don't think that comes up in the in the thing, but that is that is very much in the text. That's part dose. Oh, yeah. Here's <laughs> the thing. Here's the thing. We're, we're Today, we are talking about, because we can do whatever we want on this show now. We are talking about. Angels in America, the HBO miniseries adaptation of the play of the same name. We're talking about part one, Millennium Approaches, which is one movie. It's one three-hour movie that HBO, in all their dumb, dumb doy doyness split up into three episodes, six episodes to- total. It's the first Why big mistake. Why so they've... upset? Because, because it's, like, it's like if you went to a, a, a play and then left a third of the way through. And then didn't come back to it until it was meant to be experienced as one thing. When Angels in America like was first created, it was just the first play. It was just the it first was play. the first play. Yeah. But w- when it first aired on HBO, it was a three hour movie. Yeah. And it was a three. It was two three hour movies when it came on DVD. And it was only recently with streaming that they split it up into the six episodes. And I'm oh. very passionate about it for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, actually, because yeah, because I remember watching it now, and I didn't watch it live, but we, but I think we must have recorded it, or we got the DVDs or something, uh, at my at my art school, and uh, mm-hmm. we watched it there. And yeah, I do remember it was like all in one, and we watched it on a on like a class trip. But apparently, the 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 bus driver, uh, I don't know if he was just like really homophobic or like a big fan of Reagan or something, but apparently he got very angry. So we had to stop. <laughs> we couldn't watch it all. I'd like if he was objecting to it for a purely artistic reason of like, I just don't appreciate Mike Nichols' uh, direction. Yes, exactly. Orthodox Jews would never eat an apple at a cemetery. Like that wouldn't be the way they do it. Yeah, this is not the best <laughs> oh way to adapt Tony Kushner. And- well, this, I this prefer a bright is- room called day. <laughs> hey, I, come on. The the episode format didn't bother me because it's so dense. It kind of gave me a second to like reflect on what I had just seen, which was usually like a lot mm-hmm. to process and think about. So to me, it actually kind of made more sense to be like, huh, I gotta like sit with that for a second before we just like carry on to the next scene of madness. I, will say, I well, think I watched it with my sister and she found it a little hard to get into at first, especially because I had told her about the kind of like magic realism of it all. And I think that she was really looking forward to that part. And she felt like it kind of took a while to get there, you know, before you actually mm-hmm. see the angel. So she was kind of like, I so after that. like the second episode, she was like, so when does the angel appear? And I was like, you've got to wait, you've got to wait. And, and it's like Bruce, the shark in jaws, baby. Yes. You get little <laughs> hints and then you get the full Monty later. Yes. Yes. But it yeah. takes a little bit. This this episode yeah. comes out in October, which is my birthday month, and which makes sense that we are doing these episodes because this is fully an indulgent project. I was going to say, me. like, I, I told Kevin that when, when this first came up, it was in the context, I think we were talking about documentaries. So I thought this was like a documentary. Caroline thought it was a documentary. America. Uh, no. And so I was like, oh, okay. And then I like looked it up and then I got into it and I was like, Oh, so I'm on 
Kevin's new podcast where we get to talk about things like right in the pocket of like what, what he loves. Like what? Like what's Kevin core about this? I want to know your and then. Oh my god! Like the the music alone, I was like, this is well. One, it was like comforting to me too because I was like, oh, this is this reminds me of like all my like late nineties, you know, shows you'd watch or just like something wholesome. The about, music like, reminded you clarinet, of that, I guess. Just roll with me, Kevin. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> and then just like the look of it and then the the dialogue and the very play-like feel. I was like, oh, this feels very probably like West Wing and like feels feels right. And Meryl Streep you know? on an HBO show. Not, yeah, I'm not mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very Kevin Core. Yes. It's Kevin Core. We have to stare that fact in the face. Mar and I have a little bit of a relationship going back to... Have you ever seen him perform live in theater, Mar? Um, Kind of. I I saw like um I think actors like like there were so many studios, different acting studios at NYU. And I saw like one group that my friend was in uh do do like a staged performance of uh, Millennium Approaches. And they didn't do mm-hmm. Perestroika, but they, they just did Millennium Approaches. But the thing is they were they were all good enough actors that even though it was like undergraduate theater, it was it was great. And also it was I mean, it's just a good play. So like, I remember I came home and like my eyes were shining and, and I was just like, oh my God. And my <laughs> my uh, boyfriend at the time, like he liked theater, but I don't think he knew Angels in America and he didn't have the relationship with it that I did, um, which we'll get into later. I'll talk about my my first experience with Angels in America. Oh, please. But, yes. uh, but I, I came home and I was like, I was like all starry eyed and I was just so full of emotion. And he was just like, wow. And I was like, look, you're a film major. This is like, this is like the same thing as like you, you seeing like, I don't know, a beautiful print of Citizen Kane or, or like, mm-hmm. you know, or, or Vertigo or like some, you know, some classic movie like on a, on a big screen and like, it's done beautifully. Like, you know, obviously you're not watching it for the first time, but you're still going to have this like deep emotional experience with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 My, my relationship with it is I was an avid Emmys watcher in the year it came out. It obviously won literally every Emmy. Yeah. <laughs> it's nominated. How old were like you 11. Cause I was, I think 17. <laughs> I was 13 when this came out cause yeah. it was 2003. And so I watched it in 2004 mm-hmm. and I remember biking to the blockbuster to get angels in America on DVD oh, as oh a 14 year old boy. Cause you knew like, this is an important text. I need to know yeah. like what this is about. Kinda. I what mean, you- well, I, it, it was at least attractional enough. And maybe there was a West Wing element too of like, okay, Mary Louise Parker's in it. I have a crush yeah. on her. I'll watch yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously like, it might've been my first Pacino TBH though. It might've been my first Pacino in street, but I was just yeah. attracted to like, maybe I got confused and also thought it was an angels in the outfield uh, <laughs> yeah. sequel. I don't, I don't think that's the case. But that might have been true. Yeah, really like a seventh heaven kind of. Vibe. And then, and so I, I, I remember watching it. I remember Touch buying the DVD film. and rewatching it over. And yes, it is, it is, it is West Wing adjacent. It's playwright, uh, you know, playwright core. I, mean, I would say that there's a lot of writing. Like I, like I'm not the biggest Sorkin fan. I think Sorkin has clever dialogue, but it's not necessarily always smart or good dialogue. Tony Kushner, though, Tony Kushner is very good at writing stuff that is both funny but it's also very deep there's Mm -hmm. always a lot going on there so you can kind of appreciate it on on whatever levels both as like oh the words sound pretty and are fast-paced and interesting and uh 
And then you can also appreciate it on this deeper level where you're like, oh, wow, that's a huge revelation of character. Oh, it's super it's dense. Yes, I find yeah. literally every scene in this play slash movie to be absolutely <laughs> thrilling. And it is something yeah. where it's like, it, it, it was something I watched, but then like the monologue at the top, I did perform monologues of it in high school. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, what did you perform? Which one? The one I just did. Roy the Cohn. Roy Cohn one. It's not a homosexual. <laughs> yeah, when I'm like 15 years old. I was going to say like a 15 year old. The other one I did uh, a Mr. Lies and Harper scene from Perestroika where I'm like the oboe, the international instrument, yeah. the traveling, oh all that God. stuff. My sister was playing the oboe at the time and mm-hmm. she, I think she appreciated that. And it's embedded <laughs> in the score. And and by the way, because uh, I did put out a little close, that's how Mar and I got hooked up again to do this. Yeah. But uh, I put out a little close friends on Angels in America, like, who's who wants to talk about it? And part of it was like, who wants to talk about it on a podcast? But it was also like, I would just like to talk about this with someone. And then yes. a friend of mine, Lauren, my friend Lauren from high school said, I remember... I came over to your place and we watched the whole thing together and I left <laughs> in the morning. I'm like, really? Who else was there? And she said, no one. It was just me. It's also very Kevin. Cork. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I, I texted a friend of mine today. Like, did we watch angels in America together? Cause now I'm like, how far did this go? And she said, we did not, but you put the main title on on one of the mix CDs you made me in high school. And she <laughs> sent me this video of her iPod nano and thumbing through oh it God. to the Kevin's Mix playlist. <laughs> Finding amazing. it, and I believe it's the second track on there. <laughs> <laughs> so it ran deep. And then I saw uh, wow. my friend Rachel in a production of it at Sam Houston State University in the year 2006 or seven, I want to say. And she was Harper, and she was the best part of the show. She was great. But yeah, uh, yeah so... A lot of attachment to this. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I will tread lightly. And then Mara, you have attachment to this too, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, what, uh, what does it mean for you? So I, when I was 16, I went away to a boarding school for the visual and performing arts. Uh, it's uh, called Idlewild Arts Academy. It's sort of in the mountains near Palm Springs, California. Uh, it was like two or three hours away from home. Um, I was very happy there. I, I I loved boarding school and it was an art school. So I was the theater major. And we were taking this theater history class and the teacher there, uh, her name was Bonnie. She was kind of head of the, the uh, she did like the head of the technical theater department, I think. And she was, she was great. She was so cool. She was like, she was like my mom. I loved her. I still love her. Uh, and she said, you can write a paper on anything you want in theater history. And so I came up with a couple of proposals and one of them was like uh, puppetry in theater, which I could have, which I thought would, uh, the only thing I had for that was like a great title, which was from Bun Raku to Avenue Q. Yeah. Um, which would have been- is a great title. <laughs> that is a great title. I love when a title prompts the paper. You're like, of well, course. now I have to of write course. this. <laughs> Japanese from theater to Avenue Q. It's too clever. Uh, but I told, I, and then I said, I wanted to do one about uh, like, like do kind of like a banned books kind of thing, like frequently criticized, uh, uh, like plays and plays that had been censored and things like that. And uh, she, and my friend and I had recently done, we'd done like a charity drive for breast cancer, I think. And like my mom had died from breast cancer. So that was very personal to me. And then uh, we did another one, I think later on for like HIV AIDS. And, um, 
And I'd worked with like some organizations that were like, like Children Affected by AIDS Foundation, which is a different organization now. So it was something that I'd known about since I was a young age. And I'd like, I remember seeing like, and the band played on at a really young age. And so, <laughs> and, and like, and I was also on Melrose Place playing like the daughter of a, the, the stepdaughter of a gay man who like married mm-hmm. someone to, to keep her in the country. And, uh, and there was like an HIV positive character on that. So I, I knew about HIV and AIDS and, uh, Bunny was like, if you want to look at, at like one of the more controversial works that's come out in the past, you know, 20, 25 years, you've got to read Angels in America. And she says, and I know this is something that, you know, is already like of, of you know, some interest to you. So you should definitely read this play. And, uh, and I, so I, I got it from the library and I sat down in the library and I read it. And I think like two hours later, I just kind of like looked up and stared into space for a long time. I could not put it down and I I could not stop reading it. And I just felt this like so many different things at once there because it was so connected to my Jewish identity and also just the way that the way that Tony Kushner wrote, I was like, I was like this this feels like the way that my mind does where it's like so disorganized but you find a narrative in it but it's so much you know it's so like i i just felt like i was reading something that felt real and made sense to me and also i mean i was a very closeted teenager and i realized while i was reading it that a lot of the relationships the the gay relationships in it i was like these feel very real to me and they feel more real than any heterosexual relationship i've ever been in and maybe will ever be in and that made me like wonder, I was like, what does that say about me? And what does that say about this? And what does that say about relationships in general? There was an intimacy there that I, I couldn't even fathom. Yeah. And so it kind of changed and it, and it also changed a lot of politics because at the time I think I was, I, I was really afraid to dive into politics because I was afraid to be wrong. And, and I knew nothing, you know, I'd grown up in a family that, you know, took, took a neutral to positive view on Reagan you know, and I didn't know about anything deregulation in the eighties and everything. So it was like, it was, it was, you know, it was threshold of revelation. You might hey, say. Hey, okay. Oh, now she's goodness. speaking our language. Greeting <laughs> yes, prophet. Revelation after revelation after revelation. Yeah. And then, and then I think the next, next year in high school, the next year of high school, I like completely fell in love with it immediately. And, um, and it was, and this being an art school, like, and it being like a thing at the time, like, even like the tech bro, you know, like the tech, the tech dudes were just, would be like, would be like, oh yeah, Angels in America, bro. That's like a great, yeah, that's a fucking great play, man. Fucking slaps, man. Yeah, they totally would. And like, cause I remember like one of them saw Jeffrey Wright in something and they were like, oh dude, it's the guy from Angels in America, bro. Like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and it's hard to um, contextualize properly for like uh i mean for myself and i i guess for people new to it but it essentially was the play equivalent of hamilton when it came out and that's how people in the oral history of the world spins forward the book that i read most of before coming here tonight describes it like meryl streep and and even amy uh, mary louise parker before they're in it and they have roles in the film they're like yeah it's basically Whatever the fervor you feel like around Hamilton, that was the equivalent play-wise. That, yeah. that was around Angels in America. It's the new work. It won the Pulitzer, won every Tony, two years in a yeah. row or whatever it was on Broadway. So, Caroline, what's your relationship to it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm so intimidated by this play on, like, all these levels. Like, knowing, <laughs> one, like, what it means to you two, and then also, like... 
I could tell even just watching it, I was like, this will have an impact. And then knowing too, like what it, what it won and everything like, yeah, it's like a very overwhelming thing to come into as a newcomer and as someone that doesn't like have a lot of thoughts about angels in America and just experienced it as a show that I watched. Um, so no, no thoughts going in, obviously no thoughts, usually head empty, <laughs> but um, I, I, yeah, it was like, it was amazing. It was really amazing. Like I really, really enjoyed it and I can get into specifics, but it was cool. Well, I was watching, like I was watching it, rewatching it last night with a friend of mine that I, I watch who's like a film, major film buff. And so he's become like my movie buddy. And we were watching, uh, we'll watch something and then we'll just kind of text during it what we think. And like the first episode, he was like, okay, this, this feels kind of like a TV show. And it's, it's like, he wasn't sure how he felt about it. And then like after the second episode, I was like, you know, if you don't like this, if this isn't your thing, that's fine. Just let me know. And he was like, no, it's not bad. It's just that it's a lot. <laughs> There's, and I just kind of don't know what to say about it all. And, and we watched another episode and he was just like, and, and he was, he was just like, there's just so much here and there's so much. He's just like, I just don't even know what to say. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, right. And I remembered, you know, staring off into space when I first read <laughs> it, my first encounter. And it, it, it is, it is, it, it's just so much. There's so much that it's overwhelming. On. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's referencing not only just like literature and the Bible and history and Jewish yeah. like culture and all this stuff. It's also referencing like all the like kind of complicated eighties politics that were going on. And then right. McCarthyism even before that, like it's all this stuff too. That was like, Oh, I can't even remember like what was going on with these dudes at the time. And like, yeah, yeah it felt like I had to have several tabs open in my brain to like, like bring it all together and what they were trying to say. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to even, cause even as a, as a 30 year old man now, it's, it's an overwhelming work, but I'm trying to put myself yeah. in the mindset of a 14 year old boy. And was I just like, oh, I think Belize what is did funny. You think? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's enjoyable well, I even if you didn't have all to that To be honest, I, I think honestly. truthfully, like, like it does for so many of us, it was a, it was a art that functioned as a gateway to knowledge for a lot of this stuff. And yeah. I've had a feeling about a few things or a few pieces in my life of of uh, the validation of liking something for a long time. And this is a show that even like written in 1992, whatever, made in 2003 as a movie, whatever. But then like in 2020, I don't. I don't think I've liked anything that's aged so well in the sense of of even like where my politics are as compared to where yeah. they were in 2004 and, right. and and something it's 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 kind of lovely to have something that ages with you and it is different in that it is even though this is a film version it's a living work it was a, there was a Broadway revival of in 2018 starring Andrew Garfield as Pryor and Nathan yeah. Lane as Roy Cohn which I, I would, would I wish I'd seen that just because cool. I, I can't imagine it <laughs> I mean, I love Nathan Lane, but I can't imagine that. Hakuna Matata. I'm not a homosexual <laughs> or whatever. I think he'd be amazing. I think it would be really different. I think we got him amazing. I mean, I heard that he had a really interesting take on the character. I I recently saw clips from there was like a fundraiser that they were doing, some charity drive or something, and they had Andrew Scott playing Pryor. Oh yeah, yeah. dude. Oh oh, oh yes, the the coronavirus thing where Glenn Close is playing Roy Cohn. <laughs> 
Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, I haven't wow. seen that. Well, that, that, that sounds amazing. That one's coming out soon. Yeah, it's it's Glenn Close as Roy Cohn. And then like some really interesting uh, picks yeah. like Brian Tyree Henry is prior Ooh. and oh, Andrew Rannells is prior. Patty Lapone is the angel. Paul Dano. Yeah. Is Patty is the angel makes sense. Yeah. Patty is the angel makes sense. Paul Dano is what? As also as prior. It's like it's they're doing a bunch of different scenes. Laura Lenny oh, as okay. Hannah Pitt, which I find to be very funny. <laughs> That would be really funny. Yeah, actually, I can see, I can totally see Laura Lenny. But yeah, but like, I like, so I've been doing like, as a teenager, I would do like the like, which of my Sex and the City friends are, are these as which, which of my friends, who would my friends play in Angels in America? <laughs> and yeah. I still do that. Not like which characters they have the most in common with, because ideally, you wouldn't want to have much in common with any of them, except maybe Belize, who's cool. But, uh, <laughs> but like, maybe prior. Who would be? Yeah, and Pryor's cool too. Pryor's Pryor's cool too. Um, but you. Wait, so what are the archetypes like in your mind well, of what these people are? Like the 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 very like the very like handsome straight acting guys. You know, the the, the more like straight gay guys were were you know would be Joes, and the people who who you could tell there was like a neurotic streak in them. You know, or the characters they played were more were more funny or something like that. They could be Lewis. Um, you know, and. And Priors, Priors had to be very emotionally available, you know. <laughs> and like, like I always thought it. I always looked at it, and I, I was like, I was like, you know, I don't know if I'd be a good Harper, but I'd probably be a good Hannah. Oh, I could see that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and like, like I would do. I would try to do like Harper monologues when I was young, and I was like, this isn't quite fitting. And I would love to play the angel, but I probably wouldn't be. Um, and, uh, and you know that, but I totally do that. And I still do that with actors. Like, I love the thing with Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott was, um, he was Moriarty on Sherlock and he was the hot priest in Fleabag. Mm -hmm. And he's been on like a bunch of British shows and movies. And I recently saw him. Was he, he was, he was prior. I, he did a, a charity version where he, where he played prior and I loved it. And like, now I'm like, like I was, I was just rewatching Skins and Jack O'Connell was in that. He was in Godless and he's like a British actor. He's been in a lot of things and he's like this up and coming guy. And I started thinking to myself like, oh, he would make a great Joe. Like he would be a really good Joe. And now I'm like, then I'm like putting together this like British Angels in America. Oh yeah, <laughs> baby. Wait, can I read off some uh, famos that used to play, you know, in various productions over the years? Yes. yes, please. Uh, in some of the Yale Drama School workshops of Angels in America, you had Michael Stuhlbarg as Lewis and Deborah Messing as Harper, <laughs> which I find to be very funny. Also, I, I remember hearing that. I remember hearing Deborah Messing as, as Harper, and I was like, I can see that. There, Caroline, this will be of interest to you. There was a 2010 version of the play in which Lewis was played by... Iron Man? Close, Adam Driver. <laughs> oh, they want they wanted. Okay, so also part of the origin story with this too is that they had been trying to make it a movie basically since it came out. They had yeah. it aligned. Kushner wrote a screenplay for Robert Altman, the famed oh tour director, God. to direct because yes, he saw it. it and he loved it. And they were trying to get Robert Downey Jr. to play Lewis uh, oh, for wow. it, but wow. they never quite crossed the finish line with that also cherry jones played the angel on broadway uh replacing the woman that came before her that's nan pierce from succession and then there was there was a uk production of it in which joe joe was played by daniel craig <laughs> which is wild oh. 
Wow. And then I think yeah, Lewis was played by Jason Isaacs. What do you see Kevin as? <laughs> I knew this was coming. What do I see Kevin as? Kevin Kevin could play Joe, possibly. Mm. Oh, definitely. And you could also you you might also play Lewis. Wait, Joe is the Mormon. Here's Daniel Joe Craig Lewis. and Jason Isaacs. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, there they are. Little, little so as info. Joe and Lewis. Mm -hmm. Prior is the hardest to cast. I think so. Prior, yeah. Prior is definitely the hardest to cast, just because there's so much to him. Mm -hmm. and there's so much history, and there's so much. You know, I don't know who would you yeah. want to play. I would want to play Joe. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> Joe's such a well. No, I mean Pryor's the fun one. True, Pryor is the fun one. Yeah, no, Joe's actually sure. the most thankless one. In the book, they talk about how so many people were messed up after playing Joe because, like, especially yeah. no spoilers for Caroline, but where his story goes in the second part, it's just like, oh, this is a lot. Apparently, you know? apparently, oh, really? like Tony Kushner would even be like, oh god, Joe, mm -hmm. like, and and like, like, wouldn't be as nice to like the actors. I've heard before that he like wouldn't even be as nice to the actors that were playing Joe. Yeah, because oh <laughs> he like represented everything he hates, and I hope that's not true. But like, it's but like, yeah, but together. Just, Joe, because I think I Kevin's think, a Lewis. I personally, I don't Sorry, think. Go ahead. I don't think Joe is likable, but I think that he is, to a degree, at least in the beginning, he's sympathetic because he's doing everything that he was raised to do. And he's but later, he's not doing well, you know. And and I think a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners could uh, relate to the ingrained, internalized homophobia of Joe too. Of like, I'm trying yeah. my best. To, it doesn't matter if I'm one thing, and I'm trying everything I have to be something else. And yeah, entering into a marriage. And also everything going on in my life like that's broken is because of the brokenness inside of me yep. like infecting everything. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of like really chest beaten part of it. It 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 yeah. works, but yeah. Or no, maybe I'm Roy Cohn actually now that I think about it. That'd be fun. <laughs> I don't was... think I don't think you're tough enough to be Roy Cohn. I think you're I too think you're so. too warm. You're too warm to be Roy Cohn. I'll take that. Yeah. Thanks. That yeah. So, yeah. Kevin, do you think I'm a Roy Cohn? Yes, <laughs> I was gonna say that. <laughs> I'm gonna be a goddamn motherfucking legally he licensed. He's like the most fun to do. I mean, yeah. he's the ham. I make sense that uh, Nathan Lane was him at one point. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. In of the course. in the last Terrifying. adaptation, Pryor can be Pryor can be a bit of a ham too. Like the Andrew Garfield bits that I that I watched, I was like, oh, he's having. I'm so fascinated with this movie in particular too, as a relic for the time. It's 2003. There's no Netflix. Movie stars don't do TV. But yeah. this is essentially the only way this gets made. It's not even like it's all Marvel movies now. It's like this doesn't happen really in any era of of film where it's like you're going to do two, three hour movies for a budget of like 70 million bucks and you're going to get Streep well, and Pacino to do it. I mean, yeah. it's in this weird in between thing like HBO now, not not the. HBO now. HBO app, Go. Uh, uh -huh. HBO. HBO in contemporary times. Mm -hmm. HBO in these days is is like this very respectable thing. And I have to keep in mind that like there were times that it was very respectable as as well. But it, I feel like it kind of went in and out at times. Like at this time they had The Sopranos, which was like the best rated show ever. And they had just yeah. started with The Wire, which was a sleeper hit, but also one of the best shows ever. The Sopranos and is basically the threshold of revelation in terms of like prestige for people wanting to do HBO and, and actually do television. That's not a shameful step down from their other career. But they didn't always, it didn't always succeed. Like I, I think like two years ago I watched Rome and mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this was when you guys weren't, cons weren't caring about prestige. Like there's a lot of wonderful actors in Rome 
but it's also just so trashy. <laughs> yeah, but this definitely like, and if this this came out now, it would be maybe it'd be on HBO or maybe it'd be like a, a six episode thing on Netflix. But it's just such a weird in between of we were so accustomed to television movie like TV movies like you would see on ABC or something. Miniseries were huge in the nineties though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, miniseries, yeah, exactly. Because I remember, like, I remember there being miniseries that my family and I would like, like, sit around and watch, and that was definitely like, like, so miniseries is they might have even been more of a thing then than they are now, um, because now we would basically just it just be like, oh, it's a series, but yeah, so miniseries were definitely a thing, um, but I don't think they were as prestigious. Oh yeah, because it would be like a CBS miniseries about the Reagans, and it's super high camp, and you know, like. But but to me, it's so weird how, like, definitely in the theater conversation, AIA it endures and will everyone will do a production for it forever. It's part of the canon and all that. But as a movie, it seems to have it seems to be a weird cultural blind spot it's because it's not like not quite movie, not quite TV. And I just yeah. don't feel the reverence for it that other things have of like, oh man, The Wire, oh oh The Supreme. Like people aren't always talking about. Isn't it crazy when Al Pacino like people? Yeah, that- yeah, that's kind of what I was surprised by. Like for how popular and how important it was for the time, like. I hadn't really heard of it, you know, Mm -hmm. like at this moment, like I have, like with all the other shows you've just talked about or like other kind of big moments that were before my viewing age, you know? And my brain is so broken that I think, man, if this came out in 2020, the memes would be so good. (laughs) I've seen, like, like I've seen some memes. I've actually used the, like, you're, you're, this is mean, but I think I responded once to something, uh, Donald Trump Jr. said with uh, with well you're old enough to know your father didn't love you without getting uh, <laughs> you have to be ridiculous about it without being ridiculous about it yes. yeah oh my gosh because that's that's kind of you know like I remember a couple of years ago when it was on Broadway I saw like there was like a, a a meme of like a dog like a little Pomeranian with like balloons on it and like floating through a door and somebody just had that like greetings prophet <laughs> <laughs> so, definitely is like some memification there's that some that, cultural thing and it's one of those things where like if you reference it people will be like oh yeah exactly but it's not it's not you know it, it's not as like ubiquitous and if you mention if you mention it, it, it amongst theater people it's like that's the thing that's yeah. absolutely the thing and caroline yeah. you don't identify as a theater kid anymore right no, I don't think so. I don't know if I ever did. I know you never did. I was trying to put I that on this you. this is like, it, I mean, do you think like the queerness aspect of it was why it didn't like become as maybe zeitgeisty? Yeah, the, no, like, I, I think that's absolutely did. it. Yeah. Because Be- it was still kind of untouchable. Well, because think about like the demographic of theater critics versus television critics. Television critics right. are me. It's just straight white guys, you know, that, and they are the ones that for so long have kind of decided the canon. So I think it hit mm-hmm. at a time yeah. in which the people making that and refi- it's like, okay, yeah, Bill Simmons isn't going to say like Angels in America is so great. Like he, it's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. So I, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's totally a part of it's it. too bad. So. Yeah, people can appreciate it as art, but it's not necessarily going to be the thing that, you know, that they that they love, the thing that they that speaks to them the way that, you know, maybe the Sopranos will a little bit more because it's mm-hmm. about masculinity and it's about family. You yeah. know, whereas this yeah. is, this is a little bit more a, a very specific tale of survival and spirituality that, you know, I mean, the Jewishness of it also like very much. Mm. There's a lot of things that are written by Jewish people that aren't necessarily very Jewish. 
I mean, like, I think about like the fact that like, like the movie Elf, I think was both written and directed by someone Jewish. <laughs> and oh, really? Favreau, John that. Favreau, yeah. <laughs> and like, and like, like Irving Berlin and like all these people, like all these like very Jewish people wrote like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and like, I think White Christmas and a bunch of this stuff. And I, I was a Jewish kid in a Christmas movie, you know? So we, 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 we do that kind of, we do that kind of thing, but this is, this is a uniquely Jewish thing, I think too. There's, yeah. There's that element to it i mean from the jump right <laughs> like meryl in full rabbi drag <laughs> yeah you know i think that there's i, I think that there's I, th I would say that like the only thing that didn't age well about the miniseries is the cg cg in 2000 i think that's right was, yeah was not the best yeah. i found it kind of charming it looked a little <laughs> no, buffy I well i would i would say that it made it feel theatrical in which you could say the artifice is kind of the point you don't feel like you're in antarctica you don't feel like there's actually a pillar yeah. of a burning book that's out. why i'm glad yeah and yeah. that's why i'm glad they stuck with the with the uh the cast members playing multiple parts i love that, that shit theatrical. caroline did you did you notice everyone who played everyone did you figure it yeah, out? Yeah, there okay. were a couple that took me a beat to figure it out. and But yeah, I eventually figured it out. Oh. And then it, knowing like, oh yeah, this is the play, this is what they do in yeah. plays. Cut too. to 14 year old me Favorite seeing thing. my, truly I think my first gay sex scene was that park scene uh, in, yeah. in the oh, movie. Yeah. Where I'm like, is this what it is? I guess, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> truly yeah. the innocence of a yeah. child, but. Well, when I was writing, when I was writing my essay, I remember they talked about doing it at Catholic University of America, or I think another like very religious organization. And, and they objected to that scene in particular. Mm -hmm. but the way that that college had staged that scene was there was no simulated sex they were on opposite sides of the they stage. put them on opposite sides of the stage and made it like a lot more abstract and, and they would yeah, get that's funny they abstracted the the sex scene mm -hmm. um yeah. but yeah that's that's justin kirk playing the guy in the park as well yeah yeah and it's and it's you know obviously jeffrey wright is uh is belize and mr lies and uh i think that the nurse that takes care of prior is also the woman who plays the angel who's mm -hmm. emma thompson who's and, also yeah. the crazy lady with the soup slurp slurp yeah yeah, that lady. Mm -hmm. Meryl Streep yeah. plays Hannah, the rabbi, and she also plays one of the tombstones in the graveyard as well. She's very still. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Caroline's yeah, face is like, good. did I miss it? She's so good. I know. Yeah, for a second, like, I was like, like, part? I was like <laughs> the range. She has the range. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, imagine a world, if you will, where you have an extra hour in your day what are you gonna do with it are you gonna go for a run you're gonna take a nap you're gonna read a book are you hey you know listeners of this show are you gonna pray are you gonna perhaps read not only a book but maybe the good book well a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time the question is time for what if time was unlimited how would you use it the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what it is that's important to you and to make that a priority. And guess what can help you do that? Therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And I can attest to this personally. I've been in therapy for 11 years now and it has helped me tremendously to figure out my priorities, to figure out where my time is going and why, and how to focus on the things I need to focus on and shy away from the things that I actually don't care about 
but I just kind of get in autopilot and I'm not feeling and dealing and tuning into my body in real time. Therapy helps with all of that. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash GoodChristianFund today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash GoodChristianFund. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Yeah. What do you guys feel like is is like the perspective on spirituality in this show? I don't know if I'm like smart enough to pick up on it, or maybe I just need to watch it three more times. But general spirituality? I think it becomes more evident in the second part too, but at least for mm. at least for millennium approaches, I it it uses religion and Mormonism as basically mythology, and then I think it's getting out yeah. with the stuff with Prior and, and the angel prepare you the way glory to and the ancestors. It's like okay, that was the Joseph Smith mythology. Now we're gonna do our version of that. And basically almost do a parody of religion in this sense. I mean, I've always wondered what what Mormons and, and you know, and, and people who've walked away from Mormonism feel about this because it does feel and I feel like there were a lot like I've I've read like a lot of plays like making fun of Mormons in the nineties and in the two thousands, you know. And I'm not just talking about like Book of Mormon, which I actually think has a somewhat positive view of Mormonism underneath it all. Um, but but just there's a lot where it's just seen as kind of a joke. And I think that Lewis, like Lewis treats it as a joke, you know, kind of, but Lewis is also kind of a bigot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Lewis, so you're not, it's not like you're supposed to adopt his viewpoint on it. Lewis is a white liberal guy who, who wants to believe that he's open-minded, but, but isn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And, Which I think um, is funny given that it's, it's uh, notoriously, that is the Kushner avatar in the, in the play and movie. He's like, Oh yeah, Lewis is me. And so when they would cast him, they would, they would go through and he'd be like, mm, he's not quite right. He's not quite right. I think it's interesting that he's not like, he doesn't cast himself of, well, clearly I'm prior. He's like, Oh, I'm the annoying one that like fucks everything up and leaves my, my love. Yeah, no, it's it's Lewis is everything that Tony Kushner hates in himself. That's very clearly that's very clearly who he is. And uh, it's it's fear and it's uh, yeah, he's 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 fear and he's insecurity and he's he's not knowing what he wants. And it's all of these things. And like, I remember reading something, I think when he was he was he was working on some play or doing something. And like he was so successful and he was like, he was, you know, so wonderful. And he's Tony Kushner and like, you know, this celebrated writer and like somebody looked over his notes during a rehearsal and it wasn't of angels in America. It was something else. Maybe it was uh Carolina change. Maybe it was, um, maybe it was, uh, I don't know, something else, but he, maybe it was in intelligent homosexuals guide to very long title. And, uh, but he had written on there at like, like, um, like you're miserable and and you're 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 like a miser you're you're a miserable uh, talentless hack and you're gonna die a horrible death in the gutter. <laughs> Tight. <laughs> Gracious. Like he on his own notes, but I was just Check like, but and I was just like, well, I'm not like the genius that this guy is, but I could kind of relate to that. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just, and I just had to remind myself that like, he, you know, he's, I was like, well, I think he's like one of the best writers and yet he's still like, you're, you're, you know, you will never amount to anything on his own notes. And he's mm-hmm. still rewriting the play. Perestroika, he keeps rewriting. He's rewritten it as, as recently as 2018 with the new Broadway thing. It's like never done. And famously, like when you read about all the origins of the play, it's like, yeah, we had 10 new scenes the night before we opened. It was just like never over. So it's like a oh very, but, but specifically with with that part too he would just go over and over with it again and i i don't think he has like a hostility towards religion per se maybe just a certain aspect of religion i think he has a hostility yeah. towards conservatism and ronald reagan and, yeah. and and all that stuff which is due but i i i don't i don't feel that much uh flippancy or mockery with how this show treats yeah. religion as a concept no, I th- I feel like it it finds it very magical. I guess I mean it, like it's it's where all the magical pieces mm-hmm. tend to come in, mm-hmm. and in like a um, yeah, in like an exciting revelatory way, not like a scary or uh, you know, like manipulative way. I I think there's also there's just a lot of really interesting. Like the idea of of I mean, and you get deeper into this in the second part, but the first part is very much about the angel, it's like she's trying to communicate through, but she has her own limited language because she she can only, hers is really only the language of worship and the language, the, the language of like heavenly creation. And so she doesn't know how to communicate with, with him because she's, it makes me think of like, like maybe this is just because I was listening to a podcast about royalty, but it, it makes me think of like royalty in some ways and how they can't connect with a lot of mm. like regular people because they there's like these, this protocol and these customs and things that they have to go through. And that's kind of what the angel is where she, she, and, and she can't change, you know, that's, that's kind of her thing. She can't really change and she can't really, you know, disobey and she can't really go against anything, you know? So she's kind of, she's, she's lost, lost. And, and that's something that I think is really interesting. And it's this idea of like human beings being able to change while, while celestial beings cannot is I think a really interesting, you know, way to look at it. I don't know. That's, that's something. And that, that I realize is something that like I've written, I've written into a lot of things I've written like over and over again. And it's something that I've considered a lot. And rewatching this last night, I was like, oh, was this Angels in America that first got me wondering about this? I wouldn't be surprised if it it were, yeah. Well, and so much of it is about our capacity to change and grow and progress and progress is such a theme of it. I also think, and speaking of certain things aging super well, there's two big entry points, I think, in watching this in 2020, one of which is, the obvious tie to, oh yeah, Roy Cohn was the mentor to our current president of the United mm-hmm. States. He was his mentor. What you see in this like exaggerated version. Lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. But also like this is, it's not, not connected. And, and interestingly for me too, I, I think I'm starting to contextualize so much of this era as a continuation of where we left off in 1988 and the Bush era being this almost for all it's, like whores an aberration to the thing that was already kind of getting in motion 80 through 88 Mm -hmm. and in 2016 to this present moment of like okay now we're back on track to what's actually happening to our country the other thing too and i don't mean to be flipping about any of this and discussing it but um this is a show about aids and it's referred to a few times uh in the play as the plague and i think 
for me personally and watching this thing, it was always an exercise of empathy to watch human beings struggling with an illness that I'll most likely never know um, when I watched it first or, or maybe, uh, yeah, like, yeah, when I watched it first as a kid and, and now, I think going through a pandemic and then seeing what a national and global response to it is when it's something that affects everyone in contra- in contrast to an epidemic that affected a marginalized group of people at the time makes the injustice of all those years even more horrific. And it's one of those, you know, it's like, it's like someone saying, well, I didn't know rape was bad until I had a daughter. Now I have a daughter and I think rape is bad. It's basically that on a global level of, oh, are human beings worth doing X amount of progress for? Are human beings worth doing these clinical trials, these financial risks, AZT, okay, AZT doesn't work. Okay, let's phase that out, all that stuff. And I think you can have some... Uh, maybe empathy points of like, oh, this is kind of like this and what we're going through. But then also just like an exaggerated sense of the uh, grief and injustice for what was happening at the time too, compared to if this is an all hands on deck situation in terms of the human race and then just how lonely that must have been for those men at that time. And that's something I thought about a lot while watching this. I mean, I do think there's still stuff in there that you can, you know, relate to today, like the idea of, of, you know, um, not being able to be close to people when they're dying and not being able to, you know, and being afraid of these things. And, uh, and, you know, do you, do you, you know, if someone's covered in blood, you shouldn't get close to them or like, because people didn't know how it spread as easily back then, you know, and there's the the having to mourn in private and, and not being able to mourn at all, I think is something we can understand, but yeah, you're right that it, it, it is, it is very different. There is, there's very much the you know, people, people basically being ignored. I, I mean, I started reading a lot of things about a lot of books about the HIV epidemic when, uh, when this all started. And one thing I, I realized there were, there were so many things that were so different and so horrifying and so heartbreaking. One thing that did seem similar to now is that there was national response and then there was local response and the local responses were all completely not communicating with each other from what I understand. So, so the way that it was being, you know, helped in places like San Francisco were different than in New York was different than Miami was different than in LA. And, you know, these, these different, it was these organizations that weren't talking with each other. And also because people, you know, didn't want to touch it. It was this political hot potato and it was really hard to, to deal with then. And then nationally, it just wasn't talked about at all. It just wasn't acknowledged. And so that, I think, that miscommunication is something, I mean, this feels like an interesting compare and contrast history. Like, it feels like something you would do as, like, a senior in high school. Like, compare and contrast these epidemics. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, this one had all of these, you know, I I do think, like, every pandemic, every epidemic does have its own political aspects. But, um, you know, you are right that in, in some ways we are very fortunate that, or, or not fortunate, but it's it's it, it's more heartbreaking to imagine, you know, not being able to reach out, not being able to communicate with people, not mm. being able to because it affecting a group of people that were actively looked down upon. The Roy Cohn thing, Roy Cohn thing, I think is interesting also because you know it shows Roy in the hospital and he doesn't have any friends, he doesn't have anybody there. And there was actually, I think, a quote in like a New York Times article a couple of years ago 
where they said that like while he was on his deathbed, Donald Trump refused to see him because it was too that it was too right. bad it was too bad for his image, which you know, and that's everything this man has ever done in his life. And Roy Cohn, Roy Cohn, who is one of the cruelest, you know, men that ever, <laughs> that like ever lived in modern times. You said cruelest, not coolest, right? No, not coolest, cruelest, most cruel, most cruel. C-R- <laughs> Cowabunga, C-R- man, yeah. I'm Roy Cohn. One of the cruelest, cruelest, you know, men who's lived in, in, you know, the past few centuries at least, uh, said, uh, he said something like, like, uh, like, Donald is so cold, he pisses ice water. And it's like, wow, if, if, if somebody like that says something about you, I mean, that says something. If yeah. something like that says that about <laughs> you, like, that, that shows what kind of person you really are, mm-hmm. you know? It's so, I mean, I, I'm just, like, retreading the same ground, but it is just so crazy how, like, the cast of characters is basically the same from this, from, like, the 80s, you know, like the 90s or whatever. Yeah. And even just the stuff they were talking about when the, like, two kind of Republican, or Cone and... um whoever his buddy was that was helping him. I didn't mm. get his name, but they were talking about like stacking the Supreme court with conservative justices by such and such year. And like, that's the end game. It's the same family values. And, yeah. And I was like, Oh uh, yeah. Progress is a, an illusion and we will always just continue I, to repeat ourselves forever. <laughs> I would say that probably my only cr- criticism of this is, although I, and I don't even know if it's really a criticism because this is just something that I feel at times that the the right wingers in this are a bit caricature, and I say that because I I grew up with a lot of people who were right wing, and a lot of them do really believe that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, and so yeah, I, I mean the they're obviously like very into the machinations of it. Yeah, but yeah, that that like that like that guy whose whose name I always forget, and and Roy Cohn are very much yeah, they're they're very Machiavelli, you know, the Prince character about it, and mm-hmm, um, yeah. but um. Although, but then watching it again, because that, that was like my one criticism of it is I was like, oh, the right winger, right wingers here are a bit cartoonish and not quite, you know, in touch with what, because most people I knew that were right wing really did feel like they were doing the best things for most people. Yeah. And which which is what Joe believes too. And he articulates mm-hmm. it as like, yeah, I, you know, America, we're not ashamed to be Americans anymore and we're discovering our birthright. I think things are starting to change in the world. But I don't want to make- Wait, wait, for the good, change for the good. America has rediscovered itself, its sacred position among nations. People aren't ashamed of that like they used to be. This is a great thing. The truth restored, law restored. That's what President Reagan's done, Harper. He says truth exists and can be spoken proudly. And the country responds to him. We become better, more good. All these things that have the art of the kind of the the appearance of virtue, which are actually disgusting nationalism and 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 not different from MAGA uh, rhetoric as well, and kind of things yeah. he's describing. Well, you can and you can tell that Harper is is skeptical about all that because Harper has never she's never felt secure anywhere ever. So she's she's never felt that and. Um, but she's she's loyal to Joe because she you know he he seems to kind of keep her steady. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I found Harper to be like kind of the the least. 
I don't know, like true character, I guess, in the play. I liked her and I liked the things she said or whatever. But and I I don't know a lot of Mormon wives, to be fair. I'm no Christian wife myself. Uh, but it was like I just didn't I didn't find her to be like a very convincing Mormon. <laughs> or like the things that she said, the perspective, the attitude she'd have. I was uh-huh. like, as someone who would have been as raised in like maybe as conservative environment as Joe is, like she's so fantastical and so like un unbothered it seems by like her her mormonism and her background or whatever that i felt like oh i mean she's cool but i wouldn't say she's like a great demonstration maybe of like what a mormon person would be maybe no she's the ally she's kind of the one that got away from the you know she's kind of like some of you know our listeners and and even ourselves at times of like growing well, up I guess with even it- like a skeptic would have a little bit more push and pull with it than I felt that she did. Yeah. I guess she's out of her mind too with mental illness stuff. So Yeah, she's it's it's mental illness. Well, I mean and, and he has that great line about how he always like Joe always loved Harper because she was always out of step. Out of God's light, furthest from God's light. Maybe that's the thing yeah. I always liked about her. Yeah, exactly. So like she she couldn't quite, you know, and and there is I I mean I do feel like people who are who are different tend to attract each other. You know, and it's why, like, like there are gay men who will marry lesbians, you know, or, or, you know, that, that'll, that isn't always necessarily a conscious arrangement. Sometimes that'll happen. And then later on, they'll be like, oh, okay, I get why we were attracted to each other, even though this obviously isn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I just have a narrow viewpoint of like, oh, Mormon women are like this, you know, and Harper is supposed to be. It's fair, though. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I definitely knew I definitely knew a lot of like, like when I was young, I would know some people like there was a girl at my, my art school who was very, very Christian and very much like I'm waiting till marriage to have sex and very much, you know, and all of these things. And, but she was, and she was like really beautiful and really sweet, but she was also really weird <laughs> and she was really fun to hang out with. And she would like, she had just the, the weirdest sense of humor and was so weird and strange. And, and, and then, like, later on, I was, like, like, I checked up on her a couple of years later, and it was, like, and uh, I, I had a friend who was, like, she was, like, met up with her, and I was, like, oh, how's she doing? That's great. I was, like, is she still big on the virginity thing? And they were, like, oh, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> like, she, she, she recently told me that she's in the, du- she's in the double digits now. <laughs> double digits of what? What do you mean? Double digits of sex. Like, she has, she'd have to. <laughs> She'd had sex with more than 10 people. What? That's a sin, Mara. You know how sometimes you like different flavors of ice cream, Kevin? Uh-huh, yeah. You just want one all the time. Sure, and, but, but you're not married to a certain ice cream. people? <laughs> yes. Uh, and I remember thinking that because I remember I remember being like, wow, I'm, I, and me being like, and I, because I, I, I didn't have, by the time like I was in high school and college, I, like I was, I was very religious as a child and I, and I was very much like a, I'm going to wait until marriage person until probably I was like, probably until I started actually having sexual feelings and thoughts and like, you know, and, and not, and wondering if I ever wanted to actually get married. Yeah. So probably 13, 14, but for a long time I was like, Nope, no sex till marriage. And then I was like, maybe no sex till college. And I stuck with that plan. But like, I remember being like thinking to myself, like, that's kind of not fair because I'm, I, I was at, I think probably either zero or one. 
And I wasn't religious at all. And I was like, wow, how has she had so much more sex than I have? <laughs> Listeners, comment with your She's body so count weird. in the comments below this episode. <laughs> Name names if you feel comfy with it. No, no, I'm now I realize how ridiculous that is. Now yeah. I'm like, now I'm like, look, religiosity and, and sexuality are two very complicated, very different things. And, you know, of course, but at at, at the time I was probably like 18 or 19, and I was just like, what? Just like so, how um, yeah. fully yeah but, but yeah but there is find there, the time I, I feel like there are you know there's always some people who are like a little a little weird and i've definitely known some like some some mormon girls who were like a little weird and they rebelled in kind of weird ways and and uh you know and, and a lot of them i think ended up becoming very spiritual in very different ways one of my best friends grew up mormon and uh but her her dad was never mormon but her mom had converted because um because uh, mostly because she she had a lot of Mormon friends and likes doing like the fun Mormon uh, activities and and that actually is apparently a lot way that a lot of Mormons convert and a lot of I think a lot of evangelical Christians too they're like hey we have these fun parties do you want to come it's so socially based yes it's yes. so yes but but I do think there is a hardcoreness in Mormonism that's hard to be casual about in the way that it is with sometimes evangelical Christianity where it's like you don't even know what goes on in the temple if you're not a Mormon is different you know well you really don't and she like had to like she wanted to be in the choir because she liked to sing and she had to promise she would be a good Mormon and I remember her saying like, like, she was like, yeah, you could probably never come to any of our things because we're, because it's so, it's so Mormon. And now she's not Mormon at all. She's not Mormon at all, but she is still one of the most spiritual people I know. It's just that her spiritual, her spirituality has taken the form of like, of like Buddhism and like Unitarianism and, you know, and, and like uh, new age and, you know, some Christianity and some Judaism and some like, it's mm -hmm. it's much more and she's very she's very like in tune with that and very in tune with yeah. with her own spirituality but it's not it's not mormon at all i would say that mormonism probably is like the things that she believes in the least well it's like bob dylan once said you got to serve somebody what were you going to say, Caroline? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think in talking no, no, that was important. Um but the thing that i i think that in talking about this i've started to like figure out what i really mean. I guess i don't mean that like Mormon women should be look like this and she didn't look like that. So she's not, she doesn't feel Mormon to me. I think it was actually that like when Joe is like confessing all of his complicated feelings about his sexuality or like invoking his beliefs or talking about God or talking about his soul and spirit, I felt like she didn't have the vocabulary to to talk to him or, or talk him out of it the way that a person raised in a Mormon church, yeah. even if you didn't buy into it, would be able to. Mm -hmm. Like she was on, she had a whole different other book that she was on. Right. And again, like it's not, it's not bad. It was just like this little thing where I was like, oh, she was really like his Mormon wife, even if she wasn't bought into any of this. And like she said, like that's Utah talk or whatever. She would say stuff like, well, God doesn't care about this or that. God cares about your soul or like whatever. Like she would have argued with him on his terms totally. and I just didn't see that. And that was I what think that it also probably has to do with the times. I think then in, in, you know, the eighties in Utah, it probably was just assumed that nobody was gay, you know, or, or that there were gay people, but they were out there somewhere else. They were different somewhere else, you know, they were. And I think, so I think a lot of that was probably like, she always knew something was wrong, but that was so like David Sedaris has this bit about growing up in the sixties and seventies. And he's like, we knew people who like killed dogs. We knew people who'd poisoned their families, but we did not know anybody who was gay. 
And, and so, yeah. And so I think that it's, it's with them. And, and in that day and age, it just meant gay just meant like degenerate, you know, to a lot of people. So I think mm-hmm. that probably she just didn't have the vocabulary for it. It's sort of like, like I knew people who, when they wanted to, like, I knew like Jewish people who, when they didn't want to be like evangelized, they would, they would say, I'm an atheist to somebody in the seventies or eighties. And they would be like, oh, what? Oh my goodness. And just leave because they were like, I don't want to deal with an atheist. But then I had a friend who tried to do that when he was uh, in like 2009. And this guy just doubled down harder because he was just like, sweet, atheist, extra points. <laughs> and I think because, you know, but at that point, like we knew who atheists were and there were all these atheists publishing books and stuff. Yeah. So I think it's probably, I, I would say it's probably also the time, you know, the time that these things were happening. But I do think that you have a good point because yeah, probably she would have been versed in the in the ways of like, you know, of, of like, well, God loves this, the, the, you know, that the God God loves the sinner, but not what is that hate the sin love? I'm sorry, I'm yeah. <laughs> it's okay, we uh, forgive you. Love love the sinner, hate the sin, whatever. Yeah, or yeah, you just would have engaged with him on any of that level, like whether she disagreed or not. You know, that's that's and th- th- I guess to me, I was like, oh, I wish he had maybe the writer had like consulted more with like an actual ex-Mormon woman or current Mormon woman or something to be like, how would you handle this? And like, how would you talk to them? And instead it felt like more, he had a fun abstract way of like talking to Joe through this woman that didn't ring ring true to her character, I guess. Yeah, I feel that. It's a tricky proposition when you are like, when you have clear avatars like Lewis, but then you're also representing all these other identities like Harper or Belize, I'm sure is a tricky proposition to write. that well and he's even gone yeah, on record I'm not say you can't it's yeah. just like yeah i don't maybe I, because as like a person that grew up in a in a church like that like i'm more i'm protective of characters like joe and harper even if i don't agree with their viewpoints yeah. i'm like give them nuance because they have it you know like it's there it's easy to make them into a character mm-hmm. i mean i'm more i'm more protective of them too i think and because i because and, and i have a lot more empathy for them than i think a lot of like my friends who grew up liberal new york jewish Jews did because I grew up with conservative, you know, conservative and Orthodox Jews. Like, you know, that's, that was a community that I grew up in. Mm So, I mean, my mom was more liberal, but the rest of her family very much was not. So, and so I, I kind of have that influence there and I'm more able to, to empathize with these characters, I think. Yeah. But I don't find them caricatures. I do think that there are a lot, I've read so many, and I think this happens a lot. I think like a lot of people, break away from like their hometown. And I've, I've especially seen this from a lot of like, like younger gay male writers. And they'll write these things that are just like making fun of the religious people they knew growing out. And it's kind of, I mean, you might even say it's kind of an exorcism for them and getting rid of like, because they've had and getting rid of all this like horror and trauma that they've had. And it's, it, it feels almost like a rite of passage. Right. And Kushner, Kushner talked about in the oral history that he had a, a Mormon friend who was a, a, a girl growing up and she was so nice to him. And it was like a really tender relationship that they had together. So mm. I don't think they continued it on when they were adults, but I think that a part of that must have informed it somewhat informed. or like whatever yeah. idea he, he seemed had to of know. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he grew up in the yeah. South, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think being Jewish in the South, at least in particular parts of the South is a very interesting experience. Like there are definitely pockets of like big Jewish communities like Savannah, Georgia is a big Jewish community and Florida obviously has lots of Jewish communities, but 
there and and uh, and New Orleans is a huge Jewish population, but there are other places there where it's it's very much mm-hmm. a, it's a like mainstream. Yeah, yeah, it's but, not a mainstream. This thing. was a, I watched this with a friend. It was a bit of a hard sell. I said it's a seven and a half hour movie about AIDS, but it's really funny, and it is really funny. <laughs> I think this this play is so funny in every just about. Oh, my favorite part was the other priors like coming in and yes. doing that whole scene. That was like I really enjoyed that part. I loved the, like the cleverness of it and how they'd all died of like some horrible <laughs> illness. Like I thought it was so good. I thought that was delightful. Yeah, that's Michael Gambin, who's uh, Dumbledore Dose and Uncle or yeah. slash Uncle Pastuzo in the Paddington franchise, and uh, and another guy. <laughs> but and, no, and, and the other guy is Simon Callow, who was uh, who was uh, the guy who dies in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, perfect then. And like plays and plays like everybody's like gay best friend in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's such a, I mean, it is the whole thing, even in it's like more ordinary first half is so fantastical in that everyone's speaking in basically poetry and soliloquies. Everyone's monologues are, are just, yeah, so loaded and dense and lovely, even in their ugliness. When Roy Cohn's talking about enzymes and acids, juices tur- churning, the game of being mm-hmm. alive. But then also funny little touches of, I know an angel's coming because I get a boner every time she does. Like just <laughs> yeah. Stuff like yeah. that. That's just so funny. And one of the things that made me laugh the most, and I remember like everybody, when we watched this on the bus, everybody laughed at the at, at Hannah's line where she's like, I understand you're psychotic, but pull yourself together. Like everybody <laughs> yeah. loves at that. Hannah, Hannah has, and Hannah has one of my favorite lines ever written in part two, I think. Um uh, in, in response is. to something Pryor says. Yeah, I think the play would be like so difficult to swallow if it wasn't like so funny. Like, yeah. I think it would just be plain pretentious and like annoying. And I think <laughs> like, that's probably what it looks like so on the silly. outside when you describe it to people of like, it's a gay yes. Fantasia on national things. They're like, I don't want to do this. Like, oh and there God. are audiences. <laughs> Obviously, there's audiences that when the play was running, you would see both parts in the same day. You would take a lunch break after three hours and go back in for three oh and a half gosh. more hours. I you can't. Have to be, you have to be good to do that. You know, you, you have to be, it has to be. But yeah, it is really funny. There's a lot of really funny lines. A lot of really funny moments. And even like, it. even like the Joe Lewis bathroom scene where they meet is basically a rom-com meet cute in its execution. I don't look like a... Mm-hmm. Well, you don't seem like uh, and all that yeah. stuff is just it's there's there's such a light touch to this very heavy material throughout that. And Lewis kissing him on the cheek before he leaves. Yes. The old Sammy Davis Jr. But yeah, I I mean, I and, and it's funny, like the kind of public e- estimation of the of the two halves. Part one is often performed. It's more often performed than part two because it is part one. You don't need the context of part two, but also because part two does get a little cuckoo and does go to some places where it's like, what are we doing now? And like, whereas Mm. part one is mostly like grounded scenes of people fighting in rooms together or sitting on benches and, and it's easier to stage for sure. Yeah. And it is I, it is funny to think like what if the end of it was just like hey prepare you the way the end bye the angels here blackout I I mean there is some catharsis there I I always feel like like Ben Shankman and Justin Kirk you know and and Patrick Wilson even don't really get the credit that they deserve for being in this like they they're so like Justin Kirk is such a wonderful prior mm-hmm. and and that is not an easy part to play well you and know? it's so and, many of their first like 
roles too. This is Patrick Wilson's first movie ever, and it's seven and a half hours, really? and he has to he has to do long scenes with Al Pacino and Meryl Streep yeah. for his first film. I just think it's so Damn. fun to think, and he he embodies that Boy Scout thing of like, oh he's gee, great. I don't know. I think I'm a, I'm a Reaganite. I think he's swell and all that stuff. He and looks so young in this. Can I tell yeah. you my favorite thing he does? Is yeah. Uh, when he eats three hot dogs and Pepto Bismol and washes it down with a coke, Disgusto. I was like, "Me? Disgu- no, okay, that's the that's the angel and me, America that uh, Caroline would make is me." <laughs> yeah, that is the meme. <laughs> it's like I downed so much Pepto Bismol this week alone. Yeah, no, same, same. I, I I have a picture of me somewhere, like like kissing a bottle of it, like I'm kissing a bottle of like Pepto or something. Oh, gracious. Like, like, it's, like, it's yeah. the only way to live. It is. It uh, is. It's so good. Cats. Yeah. It's and, about and cats singing cats. Oh, you're going to love it. And there's a, there's like a line. I think there's a stage direction in the play that like, like that talks about like how there's sexual tension. And there is when he wipes off his antacid mustache. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, <laughs> it's so disgusting, but it's so beautiful. I, I really love the, the monologue about smelling too. I remember oh, yeah, yeah. when I was, 16 17 i was like that is the sexiest thing i've ever heard yeah oh that's in part two for caroline uh <laughs> oh it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I remember that part. Um, yeah, okay. yeah well and i you know uh gosh i don't know and obviously there's still some probably ingrained in me to this day but i'm grateful for things like this and art like this that does that yeah. probably saved me from a lot of homophobia in the future in terms of making people complicated and ugly and funny and beautiful and normalizing those relationships even in my head as like a 14 year old kid growing up in texas that doesn't know progress from a hole in the ground like truly being able to engage with something in a very heartfelt way that in some ways made it safe i think in the future and really Mm -hmm. i think um opened myself up to different ways of thought and relationship, but, but stuff like this, you know, it's, it, it feels dumb and reductive to say like, you know, modern family normalized a certain kind of gay marriage or even, uh, our, our old pal Ellen normalized a certain kind of queer person for people watching TV. But it like this stuff does make impact. Yes. And, and it is one of those things. And it's so funny again, to read the oral history because the, the uh, magnificence with which theater people speak about their own creativity and themselves and their art yeah. is so funny. Like, like the Tony award speeches compared to every other kind of award speech. They're so oh. funny. Cause they're like way out of proportion to like the rest of the country's interest in them. But they're like, as actors, we tell the truth and all this stuff. But stuff- I, I did, yeah, I, I had a teacher who used to say, um, she was like, we're uh, we're emotional firemen. That's what we are. We're, we're emotional firefighters. We put ourselves in these difficult feelings and these painful situations on purpose. Perfect. That's so funny. Yeah, and it's helping us. I love that shit. But you know, like for me, and it did it did work as a as a sort of salve at the time. And I did bump that soundtrack all the time. That's another thing I want to go on a rant on. The soundtrack is nowhere to be found on streaming. You can't even buy yeah. it on on Apple Music anymore. And it's my favorite Thomas Newman score ever. I think it has its yeah. most beautiful, beautiful. melodies. <laughs> what are you I doing, Carol? <laughs> you say I knew I it. I knew it. <laughs> the oboe, they 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 have a whole thing about the oboe later on, yeah. you know. And I, I listening to it for the first time, I was like, oh, "That's an oboe. That's mm-hmm. an oboe." <laughs> and 
also, oh I, I I need to be confessional with my two friends right now uh, about a certain thing. Because you know how like little lines or gestures, like we're all products of the things we watch and consume and all the people we've ever met. Yeah. And sometimes we, we, we uh, internalize these things and they come out in different ways in our life. And uh, so, as you know, when Joe Pitt comes home to his wife, Harper, he says something that is very unusual for most of us, which he says, hey, buddy. And then he says, buddy, kiss. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I've realized that uh, I do. I've never said buddy kiss, but I think it's possible that I've used buddy as a term of endearment because of angels. <laughs> in like a term of endearment from a broken failing marriage. But like, have you, <laughs> yes. said, that to, have you said that to a girlfriend? No. Well, so you've said that as I've never had a girlfriend. Mark. No, I, I, I haven't had a, well, uh, a committed. No, no, not really. Oh, maybe I'm fine. Or maybe I haven't had a girlfriend because I keep saying buddy. So maybe it's a chicken or the egg thing. Caroline, <laughs> rebuttal. Buddy hug. Buddy pizza. Buddy butt slap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did always think that was so specifically like, like so him being weird. like, you're my buddy. It's it's like in the episode of the first episode of Scandal where he's like, she was my best friend. She was my best friend. And Carrie Washington, like she's she's like, you know, you never said that like you loved her. She was your lover. She was your girlfriend. She was your the love of your life. You always just called her your best friend. And that's, yeah. that's like what it thinks of because Buddy is so like it could be so non-sexual. So I mean, like sexless. I think Buddy, and I t- I say like I say Buddy to like cats and dogs, uh-huh. or to like people's kids. Like when I'm babysitting, I'll be like, "Hey, Bud, what you doing?" Yeah, little you know? kids is what, Just, the only occasion I would use that. Yeah, yeah. Like to me, I, I say that to like my nieces and nephews. I'm like, I'm like, "Hey, Buddy, what you playing?" You know. <laughs> Hang on, Buddy. Are you? I got a little anxious. Buddy kiss. Yeah. There it <laughs> yes. is. Buddy, Buddy kiss. Hey. Also, when he says she's not pretty, I was like, this is the biggest lie I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. She's so beautiful. Like, even when she's high. MLP. Yeah. She, uh, yes. Yes. big old big eyes. Also, Justin Kirk, with like all these guys would go on to have kind of interesting careers but they mostly just did cable tv and ben shankman was on a show called royal pains for like five years but justin kirk would go on to co-star in weeds as mary louise parker's brother on that show for like seven seasons they have good chemistry oh yeah he's good i'm like i mean i recognized him but i was like i'm surprised this guy didn't become like a bigger i'm surprised same is i mean i feel like ben shankman ben shankman seems to be like a guy who likes to do more independent stuff Mm -hmm. like i saw him yeah a couple years ago and he was in requiem for a dream and he's but he seems like somebody who wants to be a little bit right more under the radar and patrick wilson's like America's Ken doll in whatever the... Did you guys see that Ellen Page movie where she cuts his nuts off? Y'all know what I'm talking about? I heard about... I know what you're talking about, but I haven't seen it. Buddy Snip. <laughs> Buddy <laughs> Cut Cut. That's a movie called Hard Candy, I believe, from 2005 or six, I think. Not you sure. know, there is, a, there is like a... I, I, when I saw it staged, they, they, the actor playing him very specifically did that, did separated the Buddy and Kiss. So it was more like, Buddy, Kiss you know oh not mm, okay yeah buddy squeeze. the grammar of that is interesting yeah is it's it just buddy like, kiss yeah it, and that made in some ways that makes a little more sense i think because it's more just like hey hon can i have a kiss yeah. you know it's like sort yeah. of putting in, into that you know i like thinking that it's buddy kiss buddy kiss <laughs> it is 
Adjective kiss. Uh-huh. Or maybe yeah. he was just watching one of the Air Buddies direct-to-video movies, and he's like, I like those dogs. <laughs> Buddy kiss. Mm. Well, we, we could literally talk about this all night, but I thought, Mar- Mara, you were talking about how you wanted to share, or maybe just make it up on the spot, a dream casting that you might have. For if you oh, were- I mean, I feel like I already have. Like, like I, I want to see Andrew Scott as Pryor, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I've, I've been watching, yeah, I've been watching a lot of, like, like skins and stuff. I would love to see Jack O'Connell as Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a he's a British actor who I think would be really interesting in that part. And he's he usually plays like a, a lad. You know, he usually plays like these really masculine parts. But I think that he could be he could be really good in that. Um, oh, I also wanted to share my personal experience yes, with um, where I did. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I was on BoJack Horseman, and when I was recording, there's um, there's a part that the part that I was playing, Jill Pill. Uh, she's having an affair with her boss. And so I was in the booth and we're doing kind of a flirty scene where the two of them are like, are like flirting and talking about kink stuff, like really openly in front of Bojack and it's making him very uncomfortable. And so I'm like in the booth and I'm like making moaning noises and stuff like that. And then I'm like, by the way, so, so the guy's name is Cuddly Whiskers. He's a hamster. It's Bojack. And I'm like, by the way, who's playing Cuddly Whiskers? And they're like, Jeffrey Wright. And I screamed, Belize! Oh, and started yeah. jumping up and down in the booth. And yeah, and oh my gosh. hopefully I didn't like, you know, hurt their ears too much with that. But I was so excited. I was so that excited is because a big deal. Because like you get to do a love scene with, you know, with, with the guy who played Belize. Like how amazing is that? Yeah. He's the um, only one from the Broadway show that also reprised it for the movie. He did. Yeah. You can. Yeah. He won the Tony oh, for it. Really? And uh, yeah. he reprised it in the movie. Um it's which is amazing. Worked worked a little better than in Wrench, probably. Um, Man, Mara, good God! <laughs> I mean, Caroline. Just for reference, they pretty much all the Broadway cast except for one person who was replaced by Rosario Dawson came back for yeah. the film, and they were all old as shit. <laughs> no, I mean they were like in their early forties, you know. The characters in Rent are like the characters in Rent, and the thing is, like they're all still. Like they appeared on, I saw them on the live rent show and they're all like a still attractive people. Like they're, they're very totally, attractive, yes. but, but I feel like it's harder to forgive a lot of the shitty behavior of the characters in rent. When it's like, when you're 40. like <laughs> you know, yeah, better. When, you look 30, when, it, when it looks like it's a bunch of 19 year olds, you're like, okay, you guys are obnoxious, but yeah, of course you're obnoxious so because a lot of 18 year olds, 19 year olds are obnoxious, but when you're 30, you know, 35, it's kind of hard to forgive a lot of that behavior. When you're like, we're not going to pay rent. And we're like, you should be working on your 401k now. Rent <laughs> should not be an issue. Be, be doing like a, be doing like a major protest rent strike. Organize that instead of yeah. you just do, you know, join to your join city council. Kind of, yeah. Join, yeah. Do some kind of mutual aid stuff. Don't just be like, we're not going to pay rent. Make sure that like, you know, a lot of people don't have to pay rent. Like, That's at least so do keep consistent. Seriously. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, on on, um, on that indignant m- note, uh, Mara, thanks so much <laughs> for joining us, <laughs> friend. <laughs> Thank you. What a fun time. I mean, there, there's so much we could talk about in the three hours. Maybe we'll get to yes. it in part two. Maybe there'll be more than two parts. Who knows? It's the Angels in AmeriCast. It's my birthday month. I can do whatever the heck I want. I, I like this precedent. I hope it's the same when June rolls around and we talk about 
whatever I like. I don't know. What? Like selling <laughs> Sunset for six episodes? Yeah. The thing about the characters <laughs> is like, you have to contextualize it with the history of what was happening at the time. <laughs> yeah, the real estate market was different then. <laughs> I think it really would be fun, Kevin, if you did get it. I hate that like this is my show, but like the Kardashians, I think it would be really fun if you had to engage with it like as a text the way I have to with all this stuff. And I enjoy it, I think, you know, yeah. and then you could get into it. Yeah, I You think- can talk about the Protestant work ethic. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Oh, the Kanye stuff alone. I don't see Kardashians as mm. low art. I think I think it's one of the most important <laughs> artifacts Family of systems. our time. Of course. I mean, of course. dynamics. Yes. There's all that. Yes. N- now, I, mean, I don't think I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever seen a full episode, but I've seen parts because everyone's seen parts. We've and, all seen and, parts. Yeah. You kind of you kind of have to. I think engage with it. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's such a big part of the culture. All right, June. All right, and uh, I cast Kim as Harper. Kanye <laughs> is the angel. <laughs> I think Kanye could be a good Roy Cohn. Oh, yeah. He's got the angel. Oh, my God, Con- yes. Kanye is not a homosexual. <laughs> yeah, that he has, like, that dissonance, too, of, like, who he is. Uh, that'd be oh, great. Oh, sure. Yeah, Caroline, we... Fury and the wordiness. Caroline, mm-hmm. for the next episode, whatever our final episode is, we should we should share our dream castings at the end. Okay, great. Yes, give me time, more time to marinate on that. Yes, I still need to think about mine too. But when when this comes out, <laughs> I'll talk about it. Yes. The first thing that comes to mind is Harper Pitt, as played by Ariana Grande. <laughs> interesting, interesting. She might be a better angel. Roy Cohen is played by Ooh. Taylor Lautner. Taylor <laughs> Swift as Hannah. Uh, what's that? Nothing. Oh, you're going to say you'll hear it later in the edit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Well, Mara, we're Mara, it was so cool to talk to you. I've admired you for a long time. And I feel like I've entered like the the higher realm of like Kevin's past guest friends. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. So exciting. I mean, I'm just so glad to be able to talk about something I love so much. So, yeah. Oh, well, we're we're lucky to talk to you, too. Uh, Where can people follow you, buddy? Buddy, um, see, damn it! Buddy, yes. <laughs> Kevin, you need to break free. Buddy, plug. Um, it's uh, I am at Mara Wilson on Twitter and on Instagram, and I have a Substack, Mara uh, called "Shan't We Tell the Vicar?" Because uh, every ev- after every entry, I end with a fake British television show name. Hell yeah! <gasps> yeah. Oh my but, god! I I didn't know you had a Substack. I gotta subscribe to that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes, please do. Well, and until next week, we've been your little prophets and uh, the great work continues. We'll see you next week on GCF Second Service when we do something a little bit different. Goodbye. Goodbye. I, I, I. That was a HeadGum Podcast.